children who have experienced trauma, they are their stories. They're living their stories. So we as educators need to embrace whatever they come to us with. And I know that's scary. But comprehensive school health tells us that healthy children learn better. So how can we create healthy schools and classrooms to facilitate learning that comes from a holistic and safe approach? The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Elizabeth Tingle, and welcome to our series, Conversations on School Health, a holistic look at maximizing the health and well-being of students and teachers. This series is a collaboration between the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary and EverActive Schools. Each episode, we speak with a different leader in their field about topics that impact student and teacher well-being. Today, we're joined by Dr. Teresa Fowler, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Concordia University, to discuss trauma-informed teaching practices. We hope that while you are learning from this podcast, you can also take advantage of the auditory nature of a podcast and go out and do something that would make you feel better in your body or in your mind today, whether it's going outside. Right now it's snowing, so maybe you need to go out and shovel your sidewalks or do some yard work if it happens to be sunny where you are. Or maybe you need to work on a craft or something in your house that would make you feel a little more settled. So I like to start out by asking my guests what you do to take care of your well-being. So Teresa, I wonder if you could share a habit uh, that may or may not be compatible with podcasts that that you feel is important for your own well-being. Well, I think for me, it's really my dog is my mental wellness companion because he reminds me every morning at 10 o'clock that it's time to go for a walk. So walking him outside, I try, even though this is a podcast and we tend to listen to podcasts while out and about, I try to not bring my phone and just be in nature in the moment with him. Another thing I like to do, you know, if I'm cooped up is blackout poetry, which is really kind of therapeutic. You know, if you take, say, a newspaper, for me, I get the Wednesday paper and the Thursday paper and take, say, an article, maybe that made me mad because that's sort of our current times. And then I'll blackout words and create a poem with some of the words left behind. So I find blackout poetry helps. And also when I'm teaching, like right now, I usually have a fidget toy or something to kind of help keep me focused and present in the moment. Usually I have a small rock or sort of whatever. If I forgot my rock, I'll just find something lying about to hold on to. And one of the things I do, and I really think every student, every teacher, every person is literally take off one day a week. It's easy to constantly have our head in our work, but it's also important to just take a day with nothing associated with our job. So I always try and do that. It doesn't always work out, but um, I do try and at least take one day off. I like all of those suggestions and they're so different. I think wellness is so personal. And the more we sort of experiment with different ways to take care of ourselves, I think we get better at being able to determine in the moment, what do I need right now? I love the blackout poetry suggestion. I think I need to try that. (laughs) 
It's cool. It's fun. And I actually am doing it with one of my classes I'm teaching now. So whether or not they pick it up as a strategy, it's just something fun to try, especially if you're reading something that really makes you unsettled. You can still find beauty within the words, within the text. And I think that's what's important with wellness is always trying to find, you know, that cliche, the silver lining. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing those. Those are all great ideas. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience and your role in the education context today and how you've come to care about well-being in schools? Yeah, so I mean, I fell into this work first as a guidance counselor in a high school, Mm -hmm. and it really struck me how many of the student concerns were really centered around understandings of mental health and wellness. And at the moment, you might not think that because at the moment, it's a teenager in crisis because their boyfriend or their girlfriend or something happened, but it really sort of boiled down to personal health and well-being of the student and them understanding their emotions, say, in a certain context. So I began to focus my work with students with a trauma-informed approach. And I grounded it really in three areas. And that was safety, just to make sure students felt safe with me so they could open up. Also finding connections to outside services, other people, just sort of being like a middle person kind of thing, and then working with them to manage their emotions and really learning how to live with their emotions. It's not that anger is bad or sadness is bad. It's just in a classroom, it might not be the best place to break down crying, right? So how do I manage my emotions when I need to have a cry? So finding strategies to work with students that way. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I moved on to a role with the school division, which was a divisional, we don't like to say the word program, but um, it was a divisional program, which was providing tier one supports for students with mental health issues. And this really shifted, and it might sound counterintuitive, but this work shifted more so away from the students, but towards the staff, because these students were very well entrenched in support systems. So they had connections to community services and parents or caregivers or social workers were actively involved. It was the school for these kiddos that was the source of the trauma. So the work really shifted to how do we help staff increase their understandings of trauma-informed care. So it presented a lot of interesting conversations, interesting ways about teachers understanding what a tier one support looks like because we talk about it, but we don't know what it looks like. And so when it's actually in a school, it shows how much support some of these kiddos need. What is a tier one support? Can you clarify that? Yeah. So, I mean, depending on each division, there's usually three tiers. It could go one, two, three, or three tier one, but basically the universal care is what would be for our division, a tier three support. So that would be every student has access to a guidance counselor. Every student has access to say mental health programs, that type of thing. Tier two would be your students with individual program plans or students who have undiagnosed 
learning needs. So they're on maybe their own type of learning plan. These students might also have supports from, say, speech pathologists or OTs or physical therapists. Mm -hmm. And then your tier one support, it's usually only about one to three percent of a student population in a school. And these students require wraparound, bubble wrap, basically any sort of thing that we can give them. Yeah. Well, and often those one to two percent might be dealing with trauma, which Mm -hmm. is what we Mm want to talk about today is how teachers can help to create trauma-informed communities. But can you first explain what the word trauma means? Are there different kinds of trauma and how does it affect people when they experience trauma? For sure. You know, I first have to say I'm not a clinician, I'm not an expert, but there are four types of trauma. One is more considered controversial. I'll talk to you about that here shortly. But the first one, the one that we really understand is acute trauma. That's your single incident. I was in a car accident. Someone passed away in my family or I was robbed on my way to school. So that's an acute. That's just once. And then there's chronic trauma, which is repeated or prolonged trauma. So these are folks in, say, domestic violence situations, people who perhaps are refugees constantly experiencing war, even kiddos who might live in a neighborhood that is high crime, right? Because every time you're walking home, you're constantly worried for your safety. So that would be chronic trauma. And then complex trauma is sort of where the kiddos in tier one supports would mostly fall, and that's our interpersonal trauma. And these are traumatic experiences that are often experienced early, babies, Mm -hmm. little children, and it's often abuse by trusted caregivers. So this could be the family member that comes into the bedroom at night, right? So it's hard One, to sort of wrap our heads around, especially if the children are still living in the home where perhaps the trauma occurred, because a lot of parents, and rightly so, you know, things change. It was, you feel guilty. I didn't know my brother was going into the bedroom, or I didn't know my sister Mm -hmm. was doing that. So there's a lot of still hidden secrecy regarding complex trauma. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, which is new, is insidious trauma. And this is the trauma experienced by racialized folks, marginalized folks. These are microaggressions that kids might hear every day, like ableism, ageism, sexism, forms of oppression, and people impacted by poverty experience trauma. But what's interesting about the different types of trauma is Alberta education will actually grant exemption for acute forms Mm. of trauma with respect to diploma and PAT exams. But they won't do it for the other forms of trauma, which is really frustrating and One year, for example, we had a young person who was reliving a traumatic experience because the diploma exam was on an anniversary date of her previous suicide attempts. Mm. So not only do we have the stress of living with all kinds of mental health disorders, 
But now reliving that moment when they tried to end their lives a year before they have to write an exam and the body remembers trauma. So we had to advocate so hard to get her exempt from her diploma exam. We had letters from psychologists. Our superintendent wrote a letter. Family of physicians wrote a letter. And eventually, and it was not until right before the diploma exam that we found out that she was excused. And my advice to her was just don't show up. Like, just forget it. We'll figure it out. But it's problematic when Alberta Education and other government bodies don't understand the impacts that trauma has on our young people. That must have been stressful for her to not know whether or not to prepare for the big exam. Oh, exactly. And that's the thing is she just didn't, right? Because her body froze everything. There was just no way she was going to be able to do it. Not only would it have been harmful, but it wouldn't have been an accurate assessment of her understanding of the course, which is the point of that exam. Exactly. Yep. Oh, that's that's a sad story. Yeah. I'm glad that she had you to advocate for her, though. Yeah. And that's really what this work is, is it's a lot of advocation. It's a lot of hitting the ground and just calling attention to these things. So you mentioned that trauma can make people freeze that, and that it lives in the body. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other long-term effects, whether it's complex or chronic or insidious trauma? How does that actually affect our well-being? It affects everyone differently, of course. And from my experience with children who have experienced trauma is it manifests in many different ways. And that's why it is so hard and confusing for teachers to engage in trauma work because what one child exhibits could be completely different to another child. So it's important that we really just take a minute, just take a breath and ask what is happening right now to this young person. Why perhaps are they hiding in a locker and won't come out for phys ed? Instead of forcing them out of the locker and dragging them to the phys ed class, let's have a conversation. Maybe that child was bullied in a phys ed class. Maybe that child had something happen to them in a locker room, right? So we really don't know, but it often does get masked as other diagnoses, like kids with conduct disorders, kiddos with ADHD, some of those disorders are actually symptoms of trauma. And that's why the ACEs study, the adverse childhood experiences, are questions that medical doctors are now asking patients to see if trauma is actually the root cause of some of these long-term health implications, because it's linked to heart failure, like it's everywhere in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And why do you think building a trauma-informed school community relates well to the comprehensive school health framework? Why is it a good fit? Well, I think that is what is so great about comprehensive school health is that we can do trauma-informed care within this framework without really the stickiness of trauma. And I mean that sort of in a way that then invites educators to do this, even if they're not comfortable with entering into sort of a trauma frame of mind, because the four areas within comprehensive school health really sort of encompass a trauma-informed approach where we're looking at the social and physical environment, teaching and learning, healthy school policies, and partnerships and services. And these really provoke 
us educators to rethink how we approach schooling to a more relational approach to our teaching. And that draws on us supporting the expressed needs of students. Because a comprehensive school health program really presents us with a holistic view of children. And they're not just the blank slates or the empty vessels. They come to us with stories. They come to us with experiences. And Mm -hmm. we can't just, you know, that pedagogic device that some teachers use, write your troubles on a piece of paper and throw it in the trash can. And that doesn't work with children who have experienced trauma because they are their stories. They're living their stories. So we as educators need to embrace whatever they come to us with. And I know that's scary. But Comprehensive School Health tells us that healthy children learn better. So how can we create healthy schools and classrooms to facilitate learning that comes from a holistic and safe approach? And that's what this framework offers us. And that also is conducive to a trauma-informed approach. Well, and especially in situations where trauma might be coming from inside the home, Mm. a teacher might be one of the few caring adults in a child's life. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity and even a responsibility I think we have to be maybe that person to someone who is going through trauma, which can feel like a lot. But Mm -hmm. again, with the comprehensive school health framework, it's not a single teacher. It's the whole school that is working in a way to support each child. Absolutely. And it's not only our teachers. Actually, it's interesting, the custodians or the caretakers, they are our allies in doing trauma-informed work. And the reason why is because when trauma kiddos need a body break, where do they go? They go into the hallways. And Mm -hmm. who's in the hallway? Where our custodians are in the hallways. And when we were working in the tier one support, the custodian at the high school, she was awesome. She would text me, hey, do you know so-and-so's in here crying? So then I would go, the custodian would come to our classroom for lunches to build relationships with the kiddos. So it's important that we recognize that we're not alone in this work, Mm -hmm. that there are so many other people that are out there to support us. And bus drivers and office staff, like we've got everyone kind of on the same team. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. Do you have a sense of how many students have experienced trauma? You mentioned sort of that one to 2% earlier. Is that just the sort of more severe cases? And is it something that's happening more widely? Are we just more aware of it and talking about it more? Well, the one to 2% is your top tiered Mm. kiddos. But the National Child Traumatic Stress Initiative estimates that about two thirds of children under the age of 16 have experienced at least one incident of trauma. And Again, the Adverse Childhood Experiences, the ACEs exam, really highlights how many traumas there are. Divorce is a trauma. It's more common now than when it was when I grew up, my generation. So even if you have a child who's living in a blended family, that divorce is a trauma. So we can see that there are multiple ways that trauma impacts children. and 
teachers also themselves have experienced trauma. And so that's why when we're doing this work, self-care is super important. But yeah, ACEs is, of course, a really good tool. And I often will present the list of ACEs to teachers to just show how broad they are. Because like I mentioned before, trauma is ultimately for some kiddos the root cause of some of these other conduct disorders, ADHD, and behavioral diagnosis. So I don't necessarily think it's happening more. Mm -hmm. I just think we're learning more about trauma and that many of our previous sort of understandings were not derived from a trauma-informed lens. They were derived from a sort of deficit model right? What the kiddos can't do. So therefore it must be this disorder. But again, trauma is not easy to diagnose and Mm -hmm. it often goes undiagnosed because it's not like we're going to disclose to someone, yeah, you know, last night I was sexually assaulted and now I have Mm -hmm. trauma. So we tend to, like I said, attach other labels to it. And then the challenge is that the treatment doesn't align with the root cause. And that's when as teachers were pulling our hair out, oh, they took their ADHD meds today. Why are they still throwing chairs? You know, and it's because there's something else going on. Yeah, that's such an important point to remember when you're in the moment Mm -hmm. dealing with those, the chairs or whatever is coming your way. And I can provide a link to the ACEs exam in the show notes so people can Mm -hmm. read that. I have read that before and it did make me realize like, wow, there are so many different things that can happen in a childhood that are traumatic that often we just gloss over or say, oh, that's normal or that's typical, but it really does leave a mark. Exactly. Yeah. You've mentioned a little bit about this, but how else might trauma show up at school? Why is this important for teachers to understand? Well, it really shows up in as many ways as there are children. And it's hard. It really is hard. It's not easy. But we really need to learn how to look past the behaviors and instead think about what children are trying to say. These behaviors can often manifest in school avoidance and attendance issues, throwing chairs, the quiet kid, Mm -hmm. right? Don't forget about the quiet kid. Or we might not even notice because often kids are trying to hide any clues to their pain, right? So they don't want to be called on. They don't want to draw attention to themselves. One instance I remember, there was a grade nine student who I'd been working with for about a few months. And one day I was an acting admin because all of our admin were out of the building. And so a teacher called to the office because... From what the teacher said, the student was being confrontational, was disrespecting the teacher. And so the teacher wanted them to leave the classroom and go to the office, but the student refused. So then the teacher called for support. So when I went up there, I walked into the classroom, I saw the student, he was sitting at his desk and you know, said, hey, and then went over to the teacher to see what was going on. Because from what I walked into, it was a pretty calm. Everyone was working. There wasn't much going on. And the teacher said that the students were to be working on individual assignments. Mm -hmm. Um, However, this particular student was playing solitaire, not computer solitaire, but actually had, you know, playing cards. Mm -hmm. So instead of working on the assignment, they were playing solitaire. So I asked the teacher, okay, so what's the red alarm? Because 
I just couldn't see it. And the teacher said she asked the student to put away the cards, but the student kept refusing. And so it turned into a power struggle, which obviously the student was winning. Mm -hmm. And when I talked to the teacher, I said, listen, he's in class. Mm -hmm. He's not disrupting anything. He's playing cards, right? Is there a way you could maybe sit down with him and play solitaire with him in some way or play a different card game, right? Because what the student is actually doing is self-regulating right now because something's happening and he's trying to gain control in his life. And right now, this is how he's doing it. And that's what it looks like. It's about power because students who experience trauma they're trying to get some sort of sense of control into their lives because everything else is gone. And so for this student, it was to play cards. And after I talked to the teacher, she went in, she just kind of went and sat down with the student and they had a game of fish and it was fine, right? It was good. It could have gone, incidences like that have gone sideways, Mm -hmm. but it's really just what is going on here? Just take a minute. What's happening? And what's the battle that I'm really willing to die on? And you had the background on that student. Yes. To maybe understand what could be going on. But what if we don't have that background? Yeah. And that's what's important is as teachers, we spend way more time with our kiddos in elementary school. Mm -hmm. Middle school, we start to lose them a little bit. And then high school, you might see one student for an hour a day and that's it. So as teachers, we really have our blinders on with respect to these children who have experienced trauma. Again, reach out and ask for help. Mm -hmm. And most schools will have a guidance counselor. If they don't, ask an assistant principal say, hey, I think there's something going on with the student, but I'm not quite sure. Because those folks will have sort of the broader view. They'll have siblings, they'll have families, they'll know the history of the students. So always reach out and ask and don't be afraid to reach out and ask. Yeah, I think especially when at least when I was first starting out teaching, it always felt like asking for help was admitting that you Mm -hmm. didn't know what you were doing and that that would be perceived as negative. But Mm -hmm. we would never want our students to feel that way. And so we need to we need to apply that to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We all need to learn and grow in this. Oh, absolutely. And actually, when you don't ask for help, people know, right? Because (laughs) then, (laughs) you know, because you're struggling. Yeah. And everyone knows you're struggling. And if you're not going to reach out for help. The situation won't get better. No. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So can trauma be healed? Is it something that a therapist, you know, does? What is the teacher's role in relation to students' trauma? Like I said, it's hard to say if trauma can be healed. It's not really my expertise, but I do believe we can learn to live with trauma. Mm -hmm. And that really means for teachers that teachers need to have some understanding of trauma. And also, though, it's important to understand that Teachers are not clinicians. We are not diagnosing. It's not a part of our practice, but we do see a lot of things. So the information that we see is what we need to focus on if we're going to be inquiring further into kiddos, but we're not diagnosing kids. That's not our role. Our role is to make a safe space for children, Mm -hmm. to listen to children, to help them make connections with others, 
to provide information to supports and services, both inside and outside of the school, to work with students on how to live with their emotions and ways to express our feelings that are more towards a healing journey rather than creating more obstacles like substance abuse, for example. How can a teacher help? Really just don't take things personally. When a student, for example, has been repeatedly abused by a female caregiver, that student will naturally put up a barrier to all females as a form of protection. Mm. So what we need to do is tell ourselves that they don't hate me in this moment right now, but what I represent, right? And it's hard. It is really hard for teachers because we put so much of ourselves into work. So when a student, say, calls us a name, we might get defensive. And that's when we enter into that power struggle space, which is a place you do not want to go to. But we also get defensive, perhaps because we have our own experiences with trauma that might get triggered in that moment. I've been called some pretty original combinations of things. (laughs) I've been hit. I've had things Mm. thrown at. But it wasn't me. It wasn't me they were mad at. It was who I represent in that moment. And the child was trying, again, to have some sense of power and control and agency in their lives. And in those moments when a child is expressing their needs, that might cause a disruption or it could be a safety concern. What I would do, I would call the office for help. I would say, hey, could I get someone down here? We've got so-and-so's wigging out or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I would ask all the other students to leave. I would say, hey, everyone, let's just go to the library. Take your class to the library. You stay in the room, send them to the library, and then give the students some privacy, Mm -hmm. right? Who cares if they want to throw the desk? Honestly, it's a desk. Who cares if they want to hide under your teacher desk or whatever, just give them some time. And so it's important for us to know what triggers us. We also need to have boundaries on how to care for ourselves. And if you're a more academic focused type of person, you want to teach physics, for example, don't go and get a job, say, at a school that is known for being more violent, more aggressive, right? Because you're not going to fit. Find yourself a place where you fit. And I know it's hard when we're trying to get jobs, but remember, these are children's lives we're impacting. So we need to know our boundaries. Mm -hmm. We need to know our own wellness identities because it's important that that also helps us to model how we handle emotions and helps us to regulate, right? Like I have my rock while I'm teaching that helps me regulate? What do we need to help us regulate when we're doing this work? Those are all great ideas to keep in mind. It's hard in the heat of the moment. I know it feels sometimes like you're losing ground with the rest of the class Mm -hmm. because of a power battle with one student. And so that idea of having other students leave the room, I think takes a lot of the heat out of the situation. Mm -hmm. I think I would be able to be a better listener in that situation because I'm not performing the teacher that's in control anymore. Right. If I've taken away the audience a little bit, I don't know, maybe that was just me. No, exactly. It's true. It it takes sort of the pressure off of you to perform. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, it gives the child a safe space to do whatever they need. I worked in a group home once and oh my gosh, this girl, she was lovely. 
but she was having a really bad day and we were having supper. Mm -hmm. Someone said something. I honestly can't remember what it was. And what that resulted in was her tearing apart the entire kitchen. So we just grabbed all of the kiddos and took them into, there was another group home beside us and I stayed in the kitchen with her and everyone else was gone and she trashed the place. There was glass, every, all the dishes were gone, all the food out of the fridge gone. But when she was done, she went for a walk, went for a smoke, came back, saw some of the other kiddos were coming back into the group home. And she said to them, listen, you can't go in there right now because I need to go and clean it up because there's broken glass everywhere and I don't want you to get hurt. Hmm. So for her, it was, we gave her the space to get it out, right? No one was in danger. Everyone was safe. You know, sure, there was a risk she could have hurt herself, but I was there if, if that happened. But it was just everyone's safety, of course, is what's important. But her learning in that moment was huge. Yeah. And that story also reminded me of this concept that when it's in the heat of the moment, that's not the time for the lecture no. and, and the modeling of emotional, right? I mean, you want to yeah. model, but you can't talk to them about emotional no. regulation. No. They are doing something else. And so the goal is safety, safety yeah. for that person, for the rest of the school community and yourself. And then you have a discussion after the storm has passed. Exactly. What do we learn from this? How can we restore, you know, what's been broken here and move forward? Exactly. Yeah. What can teachers do to not exacerbate or trigger a student's trauma? I mean, we don't always know what caused mm -hmm. a student's trauma, so th that may not be entirely possible, but are there little things that we can do in our day-to-day -day routines or the activities that we design? How can we be mindful of trauma as teachers? Well, and again, that is a really big concern for teachers because trauma is so complex, because there are so many triggers. And I know for myself, when I was working in schools, if I had a kiddo who was, say, new to the school, I would meet with the teachers. I wouldn't tell them the student's life history. I would just say, hey, you know, Teresa has a little bit of anger towards male teachers. So be careful, you know, mind yourself that way. But that does, you're right, it doesn't always happen. But really, it's about consistency. Students who experience trauma need to know they're safe. So they need to know when they come into your class, they know what to expect, right? They know, for example, they have music at 10. They have timetables. So a kid perhaps who gets triggered in music knows that 10 o'clock I'm going to music. So as a teacher, you might start to see some behaviors emerge before 10, where the kiddo is going to the bathroom a lot, or they stay behind and talk to you, or they might start to get disruptive to try and get sent to the office, but they have a strategy to protect themselves. And so as a teacher, it's attention to that, right? So why is it that every day at 10, Teresa has to go to the washroom? Mm -hmm. Hmm, that's odd. So it's just sort of being consistent. So that way our children who have experienced trauma know what to expect, know what to prepare for. So you need to also tell students when there's going to be a change, right? So in our day-to-day -day planning, tell them what's coming up. The graphic organizer is a great thing. So put it up on the board. 
at this time we're doing this, these are our transition times, and things might change ebb and flow throughout the day. So always tell them, hey, we might not go to gym today because the gym floor is being painted. So again, we're going outside. Or if I know, say, Dr. Fowler is away today, she's not going to be in music, there's going to be a sub, tell them. Because this way, when they go, they're not surprised. Then all of the plans that they've made to protect themselves get thrown out the window. And then the subs day might not be a good one, right? Mm -hmm. You know, modeling, if you say get a speeding ticket on the way to school, so your nerves are a little short, tell them, say, I had a rough morning. I, my nerves are a little short today. So I just would appreciate it if we did our best to be nice to each other today. So tell them because in that moment, you're not only preparing students for the fact that Teresa might be a little bit grumpy today, but guess what? Something bad happened to Teresa and she still came to work, Mm -hmm. right? She still came and did what she needed to do. Students who experience trauma are very attuned to nonverbals. So they'll know you're out of sorts. And so depending on your relationship with the kid, this could be their time to really get under your skin. So you also then need to be prepared for that. But again, you're modeling for them how to manage their emotions. And you still work, you still support the kiddos, but they're understanding that just because something bad happened, you can still go on with your day. Yeah, I like that idea of showing students that we all have hard things that we go through and that we can learn from them and that we still have responsibilities to others and how we treat them. Mm-hmm. How can teachers handle those upsetting incidents with students who may be dealing with trauma? What advice would you give to teachers in dealing with their own emotions, you know, as we come down off of those incidents, what what can we do to take care of ourselves and make sure that we can continue to be the teacher that we need to be for all of our students? You know, sometimes when we are struggling, we need to remove ourselves from the situation. And that's okay. I've worked with students where the student and I were very conflict. Every time we were together, it was conflict. So I didn't become that student's person right? I said, okay, can someone else be that student's person? Because I was causing that child trauma. Also, if we are struggling, we need to tell the students to say, you know what, right now I'm struggling with what you're expressing to me. So I need some support. And then once everyone's calm, you can have a restorative conversation with the student, tell them how you felt, what was happening to you at that time and why you got support. Use I statements and give them time to process. Because again, this could open up a conversation on boundaries, how to manage our emotions when there is a crisis. And really trauma-informed practice is that everything becomes a teachable moment. And also we say we don't take things home, but you know, it's hard and we need to not take things home. At the end of the day, we can't control what happens to our students. We could put all the best plans in place, but still something goes awry. 
but that's not on us. We can only control our own self-care. So we need to have our own rituals and practices to help us regulate our emotions so that when we do go back the next day, you know, to me, when we're doing trauma work, every day is Groundhog Day. Whatever happened yesterday is gone. Let's just start again, right? Yeah. I know for me, journaling is so helpful for processing emotions. And so whenever as a teacher, I just had a day, Mm -hmm. I needed to write it down. Somehow that helped me to get some distance from it and leave it at the school. I would even journal at the school Mm -hmm. so that it it wouldn't come with me, at least as much as I could. Because a lot of it is like wondering if you did the right thing and worrying about that and how you could have done it better Mm -hmm. and working through your side of the conflict because you were focused on the students' needs. And then now you kind of need to reflect a little bit on your needs in order to move forward. Right, exactly, exactly. And I know when I was doing the tier one support kiddos, that work, unfortunately, did extend into my personal time. Like I remember I was watching my son at baseball while I was on the phone with the RCMP. So it's not always possible. Mm-hmm. We do need to find ways that make us healthy, because if we're not healthy, then we're stuck in the trauma cycle with these kiddos. Exactly. And maybe being easier on ourselves, especially on a hard day. Maybe that's the night where you make pancakes for dinner. <laughs> you know. So what is a teacher's role in connecting students with community partners and supports? Well, classroom teachers, they really do have a handle on the pulse of students. So therefore, they play such an important role in connecting kiddos to different supports, but they might not know what's out there or if the student's already connected because a classroom teacher has a role and a responsibility. And so the idea of supports, again, reach out to someone. So the best thing really a teacher could do is to connect with a guidance counselor or an administrator. Again, if a teacher picks up on some of these unmet needs of students. So if a student's coming to school smelling like pee, or if a student isn't eating, they're not bringing a lunch, or all of a sudden, a student is not showering, right? So teachers see these things. So they need to not brush them off. They need to talk to someone. And a guidance counselor, as we talked before, an administrator, they have a broader view of the student. So they might know that there's something going on, or they might not, but they will have access to community supports that the students might need. And it's also important that we understand that teachers do have a duty to report, and that is when a student is at risk of harming themselves, harming others, or being harmed. And when we're doing trauma work, and when we've created a safe space for students, they are going to open up to you. And this can be really scary and uncomfortable. So if a student does disclose a traumatic experience, it's important in that moment that we listen, Mm -hmm. that we don't react, that we just remain calm and we tell them, thank you for sharing this with me. I know this was really hard for you and I appreciate you trusting in me to share your story. But we also have to let them know that there are those three reasons that I have to report. And students who experience trauma, 
they're in the system, they know that there is duties to report. So sometimes they won't disclose things. So it's important when you're talking to students that you say, you know what, I'm really limited in my understandings of how to support you with this. So if it's okay, I'd like to talk to our guidance counselor. And so then you're bridging in the student if they haven't connected to the guidance counselor already, now you're bringing in that person to help support. And if you do have to phone and report something, it is very scary for teachers to do this, especially if you have if you've never done it before. And it's important that we understand that a guidance counselor can't do it for you. That when you're doing a report, it has to come from the person that heard it. However, a guidance counselor can sit with you when you make the call. They can walk you through what to expect. They can let you know what would happen, oftentimes nothing. But it's important, again, that we recognize we are not alone in this. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to that comprehensive school health framework. Yeah. That it's all of us that are on board. Exactly. It's a community. What do you wish all teachers knew about making health and well being a priority in their work? Well, we really do, and it seems counterintuitive, but we really forget that we're teaching children when we become teachers. When someone asks us what we do, we say, I teach grade three, I teach science, I teach kindergarten. But we don't say we teach kids, mm-hmm. right? So when we reframe who we teach, it opens up so many possibilities for us. Like I'm not just teaching science. I'm modeling healthy behaviors. I'm keeping myself hydrated. I go for a walk at my lunch break or Maybe perhaps I carpool or I take transit. And so what this does is it shares to our students that we care about our health. So therefore, we also care about theirs. And when teachers overtly engage in health and wellness personally, as well as in our practice, we're showing students that this is important. Take a body break in English. Go for a wellness walk in science. Mm -hmm. In music, how about we do sound therapy? Health and wellness are not confined to health and physical education classes. And that's where comprehensive school health program comes in, is that it's a holistic approach. It's everybody doing this work. Yeah. And what would your advice be to a teacher who wants to, maybe even starting tomorrow, help students that might be dealing with trauma? What could they do? What could we do tomorrow? Well, there's a quote that I love, and it's probably a bad researcher thing to say this. I have no idea who Carl Wilker is, but I do I do love this quote. And this is from 1920. He says, what we want to achieve in our work with young people is to find and strengthen the positive and healthy elements, no matter how deeply they are hidden. We enthusiastically believe in the existence of those elements, even in the seemingly worst of our adolescents. And I think that's what we need to start doing tomorrow is looking for those hidden strengths, those hidden positives with kiddos. And they're in there. They're in there somewhere. And it's just sort of reframing the way we look at our students. And do you have any resources that you would recommend for people who want to learn more about trauma-informed teaching? Yes, definitely. One of them is 
the Alberta Family Wellness Initiative has the Brain Story Certification Program. And that is an online course, and it walks you through the developing brain and the impact of toxic stress and trauma. And it's free. You get a fancy certificate to put in your portfolio. Another one is Bruce Perry's book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Bruce Perry is a psychiatrist who does a lot of hardcore trauma work. And so the book is about some of the kiddos he's worked with. And this might seem odd, and I don't know if anyone even knows about this movie anymore, but the movie The Breakfast Club. Oh, of course. <laughs> it's a classic, John Hughes. It is a classic. But, you know, I really would recommend watching that because that is trauma in a nutshell. Because we have our stereotypical characters, and each one of them, including the principal, are experiencing trauma and they're exhibiting trauma responses. So if we watch that film through a trauma lens, hmm. it really helps us in understanding how we can sort of do this work. Oh, I welcome the invitation to rewatch. It's a good one. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Fowler. We really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your stories. And hopefully this can inspire teachers to be a little more careful and mindful of trauma in their teaching practice. Mm, yes. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for another Conversation on School Health, a series collaboration between the Workland School of Education and EverActive Schools. Thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music, and a special thank you to Stephen Hurley from Voice Ed Radio for production assistance and sound editing. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at EverActive Schools, or visit our website everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, the podcast is dismissed. <laughs>